morning. I'm going to uh, test the degree to which I might shake things up a little bit this morning, if it's okay. Uh, I sort of would like to have a, a mini greeting for the next 60 seconds, during which time I want to challenge the congregation here at Bethel Christian Church to stand up and move five rows forward. And all of those on the end to move five seats to the center. That way I don't feel so far away from you. And as an extension of my hopeful trust, I'm going to step down four steps. So would you stand up and greet each other and move towards me? Can I sit right here? (laughs) Right on. Already, I feel less lonely. While you're making your way forward, I want to thank you. And I realize I'm no longer in the spotlight, but it's probably better that way. I feel a lot more comfortable speaking from beneath rather than from above. Uh, It was mentioned that I uh, have spent some time as a high school mathematics teacher here in San Francisco, three years at Thurgood Marshall High School, one year at Balboa High School, and also one year as a middle school mathematics teacher, which tells you that I'm acquainted with suffering. (laughs) And so I have done my time, as you might say. It's a delight to be with you. I have a few words that I would like to convey this morning from the scriptures, inspired by the scriptures. And I'd like to begin, if it's all right with you, by asking you to raise your hand if you have ever heard of a company called 3M. 3M. I believe even the icon is available. Uh, Let's see the hands again. How many have heard of 3M? Quite a few of you have. Uh, It's comprised of six businesses that range from the familiar office supplies to that of technology and even healthcare. It turns out through a Google search that the company was actually founded in 1902 as Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. Today, it's simply 3M. Well, in a moment, I'm going to convey to you my own 3Ms, if you will, that concern the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, which serves as the text for today's message. And we find in that passage the following words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I'd like us to consider this verse today under these headings. The state of the matter, the fact of the matter, and the heart of the matter. And if you have your bulletin insert, I have those three banner headings available for you. The state of the matter, the fact of the matter, and the heart of the matter. Well, the state of the matter is that read out of context, it's fair to say that Jesus' words here constitute a fairly ridiculous imperative, a state of being to which we cannot possibly be expected to give much credence is even possible in this life. At such a time as this, in a church like Bethel Christian, where you find yourselves somewhat rudderless, with little momentum perhaps to be found, 
even substantial discouragement over friends who have left this community, fellow congregants who've become disappointed, perhaps even disillusioned, and you yourself are at a bit of a loss as to what's next. And you come looking to the word, the scriptures, for hope. And oftentimes, you will stumble into verses like this one that make it seem like the call of God is simply beyond what you are prepared to heed. Can anybody relate? I think most of us can. I want us to remember one of the most oft- Repeated imperatives in scripture besides be strong and courageous and don't be afraid is remember. Remember that these words that we consider this morning come from the lips of the very same Savior who in this very same gospel also said this. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Bethel Christian Church can count on the truth that even these elusive words of perfection today, though they are challenging, are deeply encouraging to us if we but examine them carefully. The greater context of Jesus' light yoke seems to be lost on so many people today when they consider Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's surprising to me is that there are scholars, people who study these things, who depict this verse as saying precisely what you and I find ridiculous. That Jesus calls us to flawless execution of moral law by a show of hands. Is there anyone here today who flawlessly fulfills these commands? I don't see any hands this time. The three M's that I hold with me today are these, mishandled, misunderstood, and maligned. Mishandled, misunderstood, and maligned. This passage is exhibit A of that practice. That's my summary for the effect of many common and current approaches to scripture in general and to this passage especially by importing a vast array of notions that are tied to modern philosophy, systematic theology, present-day assumptions of our culture, and personal convictions. Many people mishandle Scripture in terms of its interpretation because they assume they know what it means before they even read it. And that leads, of course, to a misunderstanding of Scripture in terms of meaning culminating in a maligning of Scripture in terms of its impact on the lives that you and I live every day. All the while, these approaches, of course, they give lip service to the supposed authority of Scripture 
while utterly failing to take seriously what the Bible actually says in its own voice and on its own terms, not ours. As a result of these approaches that are widespread, perfectionism, as it's come to be called, and a relentless pursuit of it is a fairly widespread phenomenon. Ironically, quite prevalent even in grace-filled churches like this one. And sometimes the effect is downright comical. I personally admit that I have a like case of what psychologists called obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD for short. With any glancing observation of my car, my music, my equipment, my files, my books, my apartment, my closet, my clothes rack, even what is underneath my kitchen sink. One can see there is so much order in my life. It's as if God took the eighth day to finish me. (laughs) Would it surprise anybody to know that I know how long this message should take to deliver? 28 minutes. And it annoys me that I'm throwing it off just by telling you. But there is a painful, painful underbelly to such humor as this. Perfectionism is a treadmill from which there is no escape and for which there is no end. It leads down this dark, dark path to an even darker place where we assume that we will never be quite good enough or quite disciplined enough, that we will never behave quite well enough for quite long enough to please God and receive his blessing. I live there at least a couple days a week. It is a demoralizing dance that has no joy and for which by grace Thankfully, there is no dance partner. Because God stops the music and says, that's not the right song, and I'm not going to let you sing it. So from the state of the matter, that's the state of things in our lives these days. We turn now to the facts, the truth of the matter. The fact of the matter leads us to raise a couple questions. And here's the first one. As to this perfection, which Jesus speaks, we must ask, to what does it refer? The immediate context of the passage provides our answer. And I'm going to read it for you now, and it should be on the screen behind you. Behind me, I should say. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what more, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
it's right there. In so many instances, the scriptures are right there for us to hear if we'll but listen instead of assume. When Jesus drops the perfect bomb, he is speaking about love. In doing so, he is summarizing and fulfilling both in his person and in his words everything to which the moral law ever pointed. Paul, the great apostle, in his 8th chapter, verse 31, of his letter to those in Rome, penned the finest definition of biblical love to be found when he asked this question. And I quote, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us. By employing the word agapao, Jesus is talking about an act of the will that can best be described as being for others. That's what love is. Every action, every sentiment, every word that we speak is done to bless somebody else. And when Jesus says to be perfect, he's talking about perfect love. Now, my father was an excellent tenor. My mother and my sister accomplished pianists. So it should come as no surprise that in my family, I started singing in church when I was five years old. I was playing the trumpet by the age of 13, the guitar at age 22, and just recently, six weeks ago, I began taking piano lessons at the age of 48. You should hear my current version of when the saints come marching in. It's something to behold. Now, having been involved in music my whole life, I would like you to indulge me for just a moment by listening to a sound clip that is a fitting addition to this portion of the message. It's the beginning of a song by Mark Cohn from his self-titled release in the February of 1991. Let's give it a listen. Right now. Down by the boathouse at Shaker Lake When there wasn't nothing but love to make They were two young lovers Wishing on the stars above what all of us single folks are waiting for. Meanwhile, all the married folks are saying to the single folks, don't hold your breath. (laughs) I point to this picture of perfect love in the song by Mark Cohn only as an example of the immediacy of our own lexicon as a culture, our own vocabulary, 
an experience that's just waiting in the wings to inform our interpretation of new words and messages that we encounter. It's obvious that this is not the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. This fact gives rise to our second question, which is this. If love is his concern, what might he mean by perfect? Now we have to remember that meaning of language, particularly, it's socially constructed. This came home to me as a math teacher a few years ago. I'd been teaching in high school, as I mentioned, on and off about a decade. And I remember there were a couple of my students that were making remarks to me about my car. And you know my car is immaculate. (laughs) Mr. Finger, which always threw me when they used to say that, Mr. Finger, we think your car is sick. What do you mean? What's wrong? What did you do to my car? It turns out they were neither saying that there was anything wrong with my car, nor were they insulting it. They just thought it was cool. I thought to myself, well, why didn't they say that in the first place? They did. That's exactly what they said. They said it in their own lexicon, their own language. Sick is good, (laughs) apparently. Now, Matthew, in our case, in this setting, uses the word, Greek word, teleos. Here it's translated with the English word, perfect. There were only three times that word's used in his whole gospel. Two of them right here in this passage. The other, wouldn't you know it? It occurs in a social setting. Matthew 19, verse 21, which I read for you now. Young man comes up to Jesus and asks him, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded by saying, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And the man asked him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And the young man said, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give money to the poor. Jesus wasn't addressing a place where he messed up. He was addressing something he was missing. Missing. Teleos, perfect, doesn't mean flawless. It means whole. It means complete. What a breath of fresh air. This word is not a club with which we are to be beaten, but a message by which we are to be redeemed. Perfect love is given not only to one another, it's given to every other. Every other. 
Perfect love is love indiscriminately and recklessly given, not just to friend and family, but to stranger and to enemy, especially these. Especially these. He's addressing what he early referred to as salt of the earth, that substance of character which makes his followers different, what makes his own recognizable in distinction from the world around about. So what is different about those who follow Jesus? If we're just as inclined to drop a colorful word when we hit our finger with the hammer, how does that make us any different from the guy in the garage next door? The difference is that we're called by Jesus to be advocates of those who have nothing to give us in return. Those who have no reason to believe that they should receive anything from us. Strangers, for instance, and better yet, enemies. People who are at odds with us. People who talk differently. They dress differently. They think differently. Apparently they work for Apple. Maybe even like those that are sitting in the pew right now within about six feet of you. Shifting our understanding from perfect as flawless to perfect as whole and complete doesn't necessarily make this imperative a whole lot easier to honor, but it does make it possible. It does make it possible. It makes more sense of a Jesus who, though fully divine, was fully human himself when he stood up that day to address blood and flesh men and women like the ones I am addressing this morning. He would not put a yoke upon us with which we can't carry, he would put a yoke upon us that is light, easy, life-giving. This new fact of the matter brings us finally to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. Jesus has got no interest in shaping us into white-knuckle, I'll do what you ask me, despite myself, behaviorists. I'll say that again. He's not trying to make us white knuckle. I'll do what you ask despite everything in me. Behaviorists. The heart of the matter is just that. It's what he's most interested in. Our heart. Cardias. While his remarks on perfect love conclude this immediate passage that we've read. They also conclude the first chapter of Matthew. The first big portion of what they call the Sermon on the Mount. A series of six occasions where we can hear Jesus say, and I will quote him here, you have heard that it was said in times of old, but I say to you now, everyone is an example of his first major point in Matthew 5.20 where he says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness What? Exceeds, goes past. You see the completion going on? Unless it goes past that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We now can see how teleos is actually a comment about finishing the work, completing the work of love, making it whole by extending it beyond the immediate easy targets, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, of our friends and our family and extending to what? The stranger and the enemy. It's what makes the community of Christ this morning here in our beloved city compelling. 
appealing. It holds a draw. Jesus desires a relationship with us that not only affects the action of our hands and our feet, but the heart from where it all springs. In Matthew's account, chapter 21, where Jesus answered this young man's questions about which commands he was supposed to follow, Jesus made one glaring omission from the list. Does anybody want to care, and I mean this honestly, care to guess which one of the commands was omitted in Jesus' list? Did anybody notice? Now definitely Sabbath was, was, was what we're talking about, but I'm not talking about the first four of the Ten Commandments. I'm talking about the last six by daily practice, relationally. He left one out. Did anybody notice which one he left out? I'll buy you lunch. I'll tell you which one he left out. You shall not covet. The only one that addresses not what? The external or the physical, but what? The heart. The intentions of the heart. That's what the man was missing. The heart of the matter. Jesus wanted, as he does in the case of us all, he wants to affect, change, redeem, and deliver and save the hearts of men, women, children. In Brooklyn, there's a school that caters to learning disabled children And at a fundraiser dinner for the school, the father of one of the students delivered a speech that would not soon be forgotten. The story is found in Soup for the Chicken Soul, for those who are wondering where it comes from. After extolling the staff and its its, uh, committed service, he cried out, Where is the perfection in my son Shia? Where is the perfection in him? Everything God does is done with perfection. But my child can't understand things as other children do. My child can't remember facts and figures as other children do. So where is God's perfection? Those who were witness to his speech were shocked by his question. They were pained by his anguish as a dad. And they were stilled by this piercing query. I believe, the father answered, that when God brings a child like this into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way people react to him. He then told this story with which I close. And af- one afternoon, Shia and his father walked past a park where some boys Shia knew were playing ball, baseball. And Shia asked, do you think they'll let me play? So Shia's father knew that his son was not at all athletic, and the most boys wouldn't even want him on their team. But Shia's father understood that if his son was chosen to play, it would give him some sense of belonging. So Shia's father approached one of the boys on the field and asked if Shia could play. The boy looked around for guidance from his teammates, and getting none, he took matters into his own hands and said, well, we're losing by six runs, and the game is in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team, and we'll try to put him up to bat in the ninth. Shia's father was ecstatic because Shia was smiling from ear to ear. Shia was told to put a glove on, go out and play center field. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shia's team scored a few runs, but they were still behind by three. 
in the bottom of the ninth inning. Shia's team scored once again, and now there are two outs, bases loaded, potential winning run on base, and guess who's up? Shia. The question, of course, is would the team actually let Shia bat at this point in the game and give away their chance to win? Surprisingly, Shia was given the bat. Now, everybody knew it was all but impossible because Shia didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone hit anything with it. So, Shia steps up to the plate. The pitcher moves a couple steps closer to lob the ball in softly so Shia could at least be able to make contact with the ball. So the first pitch comes in, and Shia swings clumsily and miss. I don't know, by foot. One of Shia's teammates came up to Shia. One of his teammates now. And together, they hold the bat and they face the pitcher waiting for the next pitch. So the pitcher takes a few more steps forward, tosses the ball in softly towards Shia. And as the pitch came in, Shia and his teammates swung the bat. And together, they hit a slow ground ball to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the soft grounder and could easily, of course, thrown Shia out at first base. And that would have been it. Game over. Instead, the pitcher takes the ball and throws it on a high arc over the first baseman into right field. And everyone starts yelling, Shia, run, run, run to first. He'd never before in his life run to first. So he scampers down the baseline, wide-eyed, startled. By the time he gets to first base, the right fielder has the ball. He could have thrown the ball to the second baseman who would tag Shia out, who didn't know to stop at first. He's still running. But the right fielder picks up on the intentions of the pitcher. So he throws the ball high arc over the third baseman's head this time. And everyone says, run, 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 Shai, run a second. Shai runs, gets to second base, and he just keeps going. The runners ahead of him, of course, are delirious. They're, they're running on to home. And Shai reached second, and the opposing shortstop now, third player on the opposing team, runs over to him and turns him in the right direction says, run to third, run to third. And Shai rounds third. Now by then, both teams, opposing team included, are out on the field. They're running behind him as he runs into home and steps on the base. All 18 players lift him up on their shoulders and they make him a hero as he just hits this grand slam to win the game. And this is what his father said. That day, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. By his grace, may you and I do so as well. Will you pray with me? Father, with thanksgiving, we come. With amazement at the wonder of your grace and mercy over us, even at our worst moments and perhaps even especially at those. We are grateful for your sovereign faithfulness to us and to our communities, to a community like this one. Times of transition, times of uncertainty, where we seriously dwell in a very, very, very large pool of I don't know. We don't know. We give you thanks that in the darkness your light shines the brightest. That your guidance and direction in life never fails. 
better understood, never ends. We call upon it this morning and ask you to bring us forward, to lead us on, O King Eternal, as the hymn says. We pray that you would pour your spirit out upon this remarkable community sustained over the years by your kindness and mercy. That you will give direction and wisdom and counsel to the leadership that they might help best discern what the future holds as you see fit and guide and direct. We pray, Lord, for each individual here, the decisions that are faced by us all, that you would guide our steps this week as we seek to be faithful, to be good reflections of Christ in our world, merciful and kind to those that are different than us. We give you thanks, Lord. Give us a grateful heart, collectively and individually, that we might might return our praise and thanksgiving to you with every breath. And on this Sabbath day, we return it to you in Jesus' name.